This morning we're continuing, actually we're finishing our series in the book of Jonah with Jonah chapter 4. Please turn there with me if you have a copy of God's Word, whether that's physical or digital. If you don't, you can find this on page 775 in the Blue Pew Bible under your chair or under the chair in front of you. 775. As you turn there, let me give a brief recap on all that we've seen so far in Jonah. The book of Jonah as a whole teaches us something about who God is, what he's like, and whose side he's on anyway. The narrative, an event that happened in Jonah's lifetime, has served to progressively reveal certain aspects of God's character. His sovereignty, his miraculous work of salvation, his justice, his mercy, all alike, all building to the climax of the book that we find here in chapter 4 this morning. Chapter 4 is the most important chapter in all of Jonah. And to make the point clear, I'd like to use one of the most iconic cartoon characters of all time, Velma Dinkley, from the original Scooby-Doo Where Are You cartoon series. If you remember anything about this cartoon, you'll most likely remember two things. One, the really loud, obnoxious yelling that every villain used to think was really scary. And second, Velma always lost her glasses at absolutely the worst time. Scooby-Doo and Shaggy would run by her, bump her in the back, her glasses would fall off. Next thing you know, she's on the ground searching on the floor for her glasses, can't find them, all while complaining that her glasses fell off yet again. You'd think if it happened so much, she might think of an alternate solution, especially if she's going to be running around in the dark, but it's his life. The monster is slowly approaching, obnoxiously yelling. All the other characters have fled the scene. It's just Velma on the ground narrating everything that she's doing. I can't find my glasses. I need them. I need my glasses to see. And by this point, the monster is standing right there, two feet away, sometimes pitied to the point where they just pick the glasses up and hold them out for her to grab. But what happens as soon as Velma puts her glasses on? She sees the monster, and she zips out of there. Without her glasses, Velma couldn't make sense of what was right in front of her the entire time. She couldn't make sense of the obnoxious yelling over there, the footsteps right here, the really stinky breath blowing in her face because she didn't have the one thing that would put it all in perspective for her. She didn't have her glasses, the lenses through which she could accurately perceive reality. And this is Jonah 4 for us. It serves us in two ways. It provides us with the lenses we've needed to accurately interpret the characters and events of the book of Jonah. The Spirit has inspired this scripture to be written in such a way, to be written in such a way that the meaning is seen retrospectively. It all comes together in the end. The prophet running here, the storm hurling there, the fish swallowing here, the disaster relenting. We can now accurately perceive reality with this chapter. And secondly, it closes the book with a final object lesson, the main point of Jonah, so to speak. Jonah being the object that teaches us a final overarching lesson about God because the book of Jonah is ultimately about God, which brings us to Jonah chapter 4. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 10 for context and finish through the end of chapter 4. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's hard to pin down a main point for Jonah 4 since Jonah 4 serves as a tool to interpret the rest of the book, as I've said. But I think if I was to give a main point for chapter 4, it would be this. God loves his creation, but most of all, God loves his image bearers. God loves his creation, but most of all, God loves his image bearers. And if I were to take all the main points of each chapter that I've given you and were to give you the main point for the entire book, I would simply point you to the divine name in chapter 4, verse 2. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I think that's the main point of the entire book, namely who God is. The book of Jonah, looking back, seems to be somewhat of a case study for God's character. This is who God is. This is what he's like. And because of who he is and what he's like, we realize whose side he's on. God's heart is not restricted to one person or one people group, but to all people, to every one of his image bearers, as the New Testament writers would say to both the Jew and the Greek, fully revealed to us in Jesus Christ now. But in Jonah's time, just a glimmer not realized yet because Christ had not come, but a glimmer. God relents from disaster and he offers salvation to anyone who would turn to him in faith. There's hope for us. At this time, they didn't fully understand how God could do this, but he did it because of who he is. The structure of our text is interesting. 
this morning. The chapter is intentionally broken up in order to give us the final outcome first, verses 1 through 4. This is the end of the narrative, so to speak, because Jonah must have known at this point that Nineveh was spared and he responds to God accordingly. You can see this. All of chapter 3 is flowing. We saw Nineveh repenting. They would not have known they were spared, presumably until the 40 days were up. So in chapter 3, verse 10, we get a flash forward and find that God does, in fact, spare them. 40 days are up. Chapter 4, verse 1 Jonah then responds to God's relenting of the disaster. End of story. So verses 5 through 11 then must serve us as a flashback. Once Jonah finished his three-day visit, he went out of the city and waited to see what would happen. This flashback serves us as an object lesson. It is supposed to hit us the hardest, so the author puts it at the end. As we will see, it leaves the reader to answer the same burning question that Jonah needed to answer himself. Because of this, we'll break our text into three points. The lens, that's verses 1 through 4. The lesson, verses 5 through 11. And the third I'll give you when we get there. First, the lens, verses 1 through 4. Jonah 4, more specifically verses 1 through 4, serve us as the lens through which we should interpret the rest of of the book, because herein lies the reason why God called Jonah to Nineveh in the first place. Why jo- Jonah ran? Herein lies the reason why God pursued him. Why the mariners repented? Why Jonah was swallowed by a fish? Why Jonah was delivered and vomited up by the fish? Herein lies the reason why God called Jonah to Nineveh the second time. Why Nineveh repented and why God relented of the disaster. Herein lies the reason for all of it. So let's walk through verses one through four together. Verse 1, immediately following God's response to Nineveh's repentance, we see Jonah's response to God's grace. Remember that ambiguous word, ra'ah, we've talked about, translated evil in chapter 1 from God's word. We saw it translated discomfort in this chapter, chapter 6. And well, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, that I've read this morning, when it says God relented from the disaster, that's the same word there, ra'ah. So funny enough, here in verse 1, the same word is used again. It literally says, this was a disaster to Jonah, a great disaster, and he burned with anger. Somewhat of a play on words. God relented of his disaster, but that was a disaster to Jonah. So Jonah responds to God's grace toward Nineveh, with rage, burning anger, the text says. But in verse 2, he prays. He prayed to the Lord. Same language he used in chapter 2 when Jonah prayed, remember, from the belly of the fish. This is an intentional contrast by the author. See it. His prayer then, in chapter 2, was one of thanksgiving. Remember, Yahweh spared his life when he'd done nothing to deserve it whatsoever. Jonah was thankful when the undeserving himself, in this case, received mercy at the hands of God. But it's the complete opposite here. He's hot mad that those undeserving Ninevites receive the same mercy from the same God. Then he reveals his heart. That he has actually felt that way the entire time. Ever since he received the call to go to Nineveh. Look at what he says. Verse 
in verse 2. Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Now, in chapter 4, we actually see clearly that his fleeing was premeditated. Jonah heard the right words from God. And his fleeing was as fast as he could go. With haste, he ran from God's call. But the question still remains, why did Jonah run? Why exactly? We pick up that he's mad about Nineveh's deliverance. We pick up that he didn't want to go there and he didn't want to see them delivered. But is that ultimately what he's mad about? No, I think it's much worse. Look at verse 3. 2, forgive me. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah fled because he knew where God was calling him and because he knew God's character. All of a sudden, the book clicks into place. Every scene that we've seen, every scene flashing back through our minds, now it makes sense why Jonah would run far away as fast as he can. Now it makes sense why he would go down to the bottom of the boat, not offering any prayers, any help, not volunteering any information about what was happening, and the mariners had to drag the answers out of him. It makes sense why he would rather die right there and then at the open sea rather than open his own mouth in repentance and go according to the word of the Lord. It makes sense why he's so enraged and that God's mercy shown to a wicked nation would seem like a real disaster to him. It all makes sense. And then in verse 3, Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah's misunderstanding of who God is and how God works actually brings him to the place where he would rather die. Jonah would rather die than live in a world where Yahweh, the merciful and gracious God, would show his compassion to someone who's wicked rather than judging them immediately as Jonah has shown he believes should happen even to himself up to this point. In Jonah's mind, Jonah's theology, if I might say, the only way that his God should work is to bless the righteous and destroy the wicked. But this is not what he experiences. And it forces him into a literal life crisis. Jonah says it would be better for me to die than to live. God, take my life. But notice even now, in Jonah's desperation, the Lord doesn't take his life. God is still gracious to him, and he asks him, a merciful yet corrective question. Even now, God intends to correct Jonah's faulty theology. Verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Or to put it another way, do you have a right to be angry? Does he, church? Does Jonah have a right to be angry? Before we answer, we need to think like Jonah's thinking. We need to look through his lens. Verses 1 through 4. Jonah's mad. This is a disaster that the disaster was relented of. 
And verse 2 is critical for us. Jonah appeals to the divine name of God, the name God revealed to his people, Israel, at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, his covenant name. But within his covenant name, Jonah says this, relenting from disaster. Yes, the prophet of God condemns his own faulty theology when he utters the divine name of Yahweh, but this also reveals to us that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is not only the God of Israel. He can be and is the same covenant-keeping God for other nations that turn to him. Even in this case, for a wicked nation like Nineveh. But verse 3, why would this make Jonah want to die? Surely he knew Israel's history. Let me remind you how Israel, in their history, how right after the mention of Yahweh's divine name in Exodus 34, Israel, where are they? They're at the foot of the mountain worshiping a golden calf. How for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. How generation after generation of Israelites died because of their disobedience to that covenant God. And in their wickedness, a new generation had to come after them that would enter the promised land. He would have known Israel's bout with wicked nations up to this point. And how they themselves welcomed these wicked nations in and went after their gods. How even right now, as we've seen from Hosea's prophecy, Amos' prophecy, how right now a, in Jonah's lifetime, in his own country, they were turning from Yahweh and were actively living in wickedness and pursuing other gods. Why then would it make Jonah mad that wicked nations received mercy from the merciful God? Church, I think it's because it was Nineveh. I think had it been some far-off country, unknown to him, Jonah would have went and reveled at the mercy of God, shown to the wicked people there. But here, in reality, Jonah, a prophet of Israel, was enraged enough to die because Yahweh, the God of Israel, spared Nineveh, Israel's worst enemy. Jonah wanted to die because his God saved his enemies. How could he? You can think like Jonah, how could he? How could my God, who's supposed to be for me, how could he save that people? He's supposed to be for Israel, not Israel's enemies. How could God do this? Church, it's exactly because of who God is. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. See the problem, church? Do you see now why this book isn't about following Jonah's example? His example isn't one to follow. Jonah knew his God. He also knew Nineveh, and instead of the knowledge, his knowledge of God driving him to run headfirst into Nineveh without hesitation, to proclaim the glories of his merciful God who is mighty to save, his knowledge of God's character becomes his misguided motivation to flee the other way 
from an otherwise merciful endeavor. Because Jonah knew who his God was and he knew what his God could do for these people, Israel's enemies, God's enemies, he ran. And when God acted in character toward Nineveh, Jonah couldn't bear it. He would rather have died than live in a world where God was merciful to his enemies. How does that make you feel? Does this come as a surprise to you that the one true God, in line with his perfect character, saves wicked people, even his enemies? Even potentially, church, your enemies. There are three reasons why it should be a big deal to us that God is compassionate. He is himself toward his enemies. First is that you and I both are enemies of God by nature. In this series, we've talked about how all people are wicked. And to clarify even further, as we remain in our wickedness, we remain at odds with God. We are enemies of God. Therefore, if God were to treat his enemies the way that Jonah thought he should, we would all right now be dead under his judgment. But God has chosen not to operate this way, and he remains consistent. There will come a day when his enemies will fully and finally receive their fate, and the ultimate fate of all of God's enemies, who remain his enemies to the end, is to be made a footstool at his feet. God will tread on his enemies. God will conquer and destroy his enemies once and for all at the consummation when the Lord Jesus, his son, returns in power with authority and he puts them there. The second reason this is a big deal is because God hasn't exacted destruction on his enemies immediately because of what he foreordained to do through Christ. Here's what Romans 5, 8 through 11 teaches us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We don't rejoice in ourselves. We rejoice in God. Because God, in his perfect character, became a man. The second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, the eternal word, became flesh. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the man Christ Jesus. Jesus perfectly embodied the character of God that we saw in Jonah and we've seen throughout the testimony of the Old Testament even now, who we now know loves even his own enemies to the point where he is not only willing to relent of a disaster for a time. Church, but Jesus is willing to die for their sin that they might be reconciled to God forever. Forever. By faith in Christ, we, enemies of God, have been reconciled to God 
you can be reconciled this morning if you have not yet trusted in Christ's life, death, and resurrection in your place. God saves his enemies. He saves his enemies, even us. And if he saves his enemies by the death of his own son, how much more assurance do those of us in Christ have? Do we now have that Christ has been raised? If God saves us while we're enemies, how much more will he raise us with him to glory? Those of us who are in Christ truly rejoice at this. The third thing, now that we see we are all enemies of God, but we can be reconciled to God fully and finally through Christ, we can now have the third reason. God's compassion toward his enemies includes both you and your enemies. God cares for the people you are most tempted to hate. The people who persecute you, the people who revile you, the people who utter all kinds of wicked things about you, the people who threaten your life and the lives of your family, the people who wish you would die, your enemies. Church, God's Compassion is even for them. Can you stomach this? This means in 2022, for the Christian in Ukraine, God's compassion is also for the Russian soldier that took the lives of his family. This means in the 1940s when the Christian Jew was captured by Nazi Regimes, God's compassion was also for the Nazi leaders that put him in the gas chamber. This means in the 17 and 1800s for the Christian African slave, God's compassion was for their white, abusive American slave owner. You get my point. God shows no partiality. All are laid bare before him. Wickedness is wickedness. You and I and our enemies, same playing field. And just like he showed Jonah, he shows us that his compassion extends farther than us. It extends farther than his church. Hear me, because it is from the outermost parts of the wicked world that the Lord builds his church on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of love is that? God's love. Amazing love, somewhat unimaginable, seemingly impossible. How great a love does the Lord God have for us, his image bearers? Which brings us to the second point. The lesson, verses 5 through 11. These verses expound upon that burning question in verse 4. Do you have a right to be angry? God's intention is to teach Jonah a lesson, even now, by his grace, about his grace. Verse 5, we see that Jonah leaves the city and he sets up shop to wait and see what will happen to them. Presumably, as he was leaving the city, he may have heard the uproar of repentance, but cold-heartedly discredited this, as there was no way God would save him, no way God would spare them. I'm going to wait it out and see. Too wicked. Enemies of God, no way. 
verse 6. Notice God and his sovereignty, God of both the sea, the dry land, and everything in them, makes a plant to grow to, guess what? Save Jonah from his discomfort, his ra'ah. Maybe his evil. Maybe this disaster. Either way, God's grace yet again is on display as he pursues this wayward prophet. And at the end of verse 6 is the key. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah was delighted with a great delight at God's gracious gift here. But we know from verse 1, he's about to think God's gracious gift to Nineveh was a disaster, a great disaster. But God is using this plant to teach Jonah a lesson. So God destroys the plant in the morning. And he makes a scorching wind and he beats it upon Jonah's head. And we reach the end of the story yet again, but this time with the point on full display. Jonah wants to die. But verse 9, God asks him, do you have a right to be angry about the plant? Jonah quips, yes, I have a right to be angry. Angry enough to die. And then boom, verses 10 and 11 have the lesson. Read it with me. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Verse 11 right there, also much cattle. That's there for a purpose. God is reasoning with the wayward prophet. And he's reasoning from lesser to greater, using Jonah's taking issue with the death of this plant to make his point. Jonah cared more about the life of this plant in this moment than he cared about the lives of the thousands of people who lived in Nineveh. So God says, you pity the plant. If you pity a mere plant, do you pity cattle or creatures or beasts? And if you pity them, should you not pity those created in my image? Should not I pity them? The plant came and went. You're enraged about this, Jonah. You did nothing for that plant, yet you're responding with such emotion to its loss. The way you feel about this plant in this moment that you've done nothing for, I feel about these Ninevites that I've done everything for. And right now, they don't know their right hand from their left, meaning they don't know God. Nor do they know how to worship him and follow him as God. They are blind. This being a direct result of their sinfulness, but potentially even the sinfulness and wickedness they've been subjected to through their wicked leaders, those who teach them, those in authority over them. They know nothing else but hatred, violence, wickedness. They've grown up in it. They were raised in it. They're engulfed by it. There's no other way in their eyes. Darkness is all that they know. Darkness is all they've dwelt in. But God's compassion is for them, even them. Let's use verse 10 as our guide for God's relation to Nineveh. In this case, God has labored for them. He is the one who made Nineveh grow. He brought them into being over time and has himself allotted the number of days. God cares about the Ninevites. Men, women, and children that he created in his image. 
as their creator. He knitted each one of them together in their mother's womb. He nourished them and kept them. He raised them up. He knows every hair on their head. He's ordained every step they would take. God sustains their life even now as they're lost, living in their wickedness, blinded in their darkness, even now as they live as his enemy. Should not God pity Nineveh? The answer is yes. They're his creation. They bear his image. God's desire is not that they would remain his enemies, but that they would be reconciled to him through repentance. And God has worked to that end. God has called out to them through this wayward prophet. God has relented of the disaster. God has acted in character toward his enemies. The object lesson thus comes into full view. Church, God's compassion extends even to his enemies. And if this is who he is, what he is like, then whose side is he on? Who is he for? God is for his enemies. But not in the way Jonah might think. He's not for our enemies, that he might be against us. Or for our enemies in the sense that he supports or encourages or would ever condone their wickedness. But on their side for them, meaning he forbears with even their wickedness in great patience so that his compassion for them might shine through. So that they might look and see that God's love extends to the wicked and they can receive his love, not his judgment. They can be in covenant with God, not under his wrath. And now all of a sudden, seeing God's love like this, we understand the lesson. And when we understand the lesson, what God has taught us through Jonah is that if God is willing to go so far for his enemies, we should too. His love, his compassion to that degree must be emulated. There's no other way to love as deeply as God loves than to love even our enemies. God has been the example that we ought to follow in the book of Jonah. And church, the reality for us as redeemed children of God on this side of the cross is that the remainder of the world, apart from faith in God's final act of compassion poured out on his enemies, namely in the work of Jesus Christ, apart from faith in him, the rest of the people in the world remain enemies of God and will receive judgment as enemies of God. What kind of emotions does that stir in you? That the world is at enmity with God. How does it make you feel knowing that the person you are most tempted to hate or the person who hates you, they are at enmity with God? And does your heart break for them with deep compassion the way we see God's heart for wicked enemies like Nineveh? 
who by their very lives hated him as God? If you're a Christian here this morning, you know who God is and what he can do. Because you know what Christ has done for you. What kind of emotions does it stir in you, church, knowing that there are billions of people in the world, millions in our country, thousands in our cities, hundreds at our workplaces, our favorite restaurants, our frequented stores, dozens in our neighborhoods right next to our home that live as enemies of Christ, but you know God. You have his message of reconciliation on your lips. God's desire is that even those people might come to him and receive his mercy. But digging even deeper into our hearts, what kind of emotions, this is hard church, what kind of emotions does it stir in you knowing that the person who abused you, the person who stole your time, stole your money, stole your innocence, the person who held you dearest, you held dearest, and they reject you right now, even your existence, the person who took everything away from you, the person who abandoned you, the person who's alive right now, that if you were pressed, you'd confess, you'd be happy if they were dead. That person, the person you're most tempted to hate in your heart, God's desire is that even that person might come to him and receive his mercy. And God is good. He's good. What kind of love to forbear with wicked people in order to show his compassion to them. And church, when God says, when God saves that person, the person that you're most tempted to hate, when God saves that person, your question should never be, God, why them? It should be, how about another one? How about another one, Lord? How about that other person? How about that person who hates me? Will you save them? If you can save the worst, you can save them. Oh, how deeply the Holy Spirit of God must transform our hearts through the washing of Christ's blood and his word that we might love our enemies the way God does, the way God has loved us. This is Christ's love poured out on us on the cross. This is the love that is incorruptible. This is a love that is willing to lay down his life for his friends. God is love, and here we see yet another glimpse of just what that means, which brings us to the final point I want to leave you with, the point of application for the entire book of Jonah. Number three, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I want to end our time with what I believe the application of the entire book of Jonah to be. That is, to imitate the character of God. And we see, that we see his character fully revealed to us in his son, Jesus. Therefore, the application of Jonah is to imitate God's mercy fully displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to read two passages of scripture to you, both directly correlated with what we've learned about how we are to respond to our enemies 
in light of God's mercy to his enemies. I'll read the passages and I'll give summary applications for us as we close our time in this book. The first is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. This is what the Lord Jesus says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But if you do good to those who are, do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Every single verse in this passage is directly applicable to those of us who are in Christ. And remember, we don't do these kinds of things to earn God's favor. We do these things out of the overflow of what God has already done in us and for us, which also means if you don't know Christ, if you don't have a spirit within you, you can't do these things to begin with. You can't love like this. You can't be merciful like this because you haven't yet received God's mercy for you. So turn to him. Here's two things believers can apply from, about God's mercy from Jonah and from these words from our Lord Jesus, incarnate mercy himself. Number one, being merciful like God requires a sacrifice of self. You've got to put you to death. Brothers, sisters, this is hard. But we cannot love people like this, like Christ who went to his death for his enemies if we harbor bitterness, resentment, anger, grudges against other image bearers, no matter what the sin is, for their sin against us. The only way we can love like this is to die to ourselves and to live to Christ, to count even our enemies' needs more significant than our own, especially if their need is to be reconciled to God. Second, being merciful like God requires an increasing love for God. It is hard to imagine my enemies, the people who have hurt me the most, church, being saved by God, but God can do it. It would be his delight, his joy to save yet another sinner out from under his wrath and give them eternal life just like he did it for me and for you. 
And according to this text, he calls you and I to be participants in that work. And I'm saying the only way we can participate in this is to pursue a deeper love for God so much so that we won't find ourselves trying to cope with the fact that our enemy was saved. But rejoice with them that they are saved. Everything they've done to me, paid for at the cross of Christ. And you know what? They might just sit across the table from me, the Lord's table, in eternity. And it would be right and good for God to do so. That's powerful, but that kind of mercy is Holy Spirit given. And we won't have it unless we increasingly revel in God's love. And then lastly, the second passage, Luke 10, verse 30 through 37. Parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Three applications. In light of this, one, show mercy. There is no other alternative. That is the point. God is merciful. If you have been shown his mercy, there is nothing else we can do besides show his mercy to others. Second, God's mercy transcends the hatred in our hearts. The parable is about mercy, and Jesus used a Samaritan traveler to show mercy to a Jewish man. By definition, they should have hated everything about each other. Racially, ethnically, culturally, religiously, they should have hated each other with a deep hatred. But God's mercy transcends any reason we might give for hatred in our heart. And third, the command from Christ is to go and do likewise. Luke 6 and Luke 10 are the application of the book of Jonah. Real life mercy. These are the realized applications of what God was teaching Jonah outside that great city. God was merciful to his enemy, the enemies of his people, because our God loves all those whom he has created in his image. And he desires his message to get to them. So take it to them. Go and do likewise, says our Lord Jesus. Let's pray.